So what happened to my dad, I describe as like watching someone die in a car crash, only it takes four months and you just get all of the precursors to it. So, so that's what it's like to me, is just like watching this person lose his mind. That's Franklin Cook. And we conducted the interview you're about to hear in his living room just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And Franklin's a grief coach, which uh, is a, someone who I didn't know really existed. Uh, he is someone who facilitates bereavement groups, those gatherings of others who have lost loved ones and his specialty is on suicide so I felt you know this is a pretty perfect person for me to be meeting during this this trip and I'm so grateful that our schedules aligned he was just about to head on a family trip and he was able to make some time and Franklin's living room is full of books I could tell that he devours books and he's a very inquisitive and exploratory character and I knew that he was going to share some of his explorations of how he approached his own healing after his father's death. And what I really appreciate about this interview is not only Franklin's thoughtfulness of his father, but he brings us back in time, which I think is hard for me. Um, You know, I lost my father when I was three and a half, and that was in 1981. And I didn't really know what, I mean, I knew that healthcare at that time was, of course, very different, but Franklin really contextualizes the inefficiency and lack of awareness of mental health services in 1978 when his father was in a psychiatric care unit. And Franklin really grounds us back in 1978 to help contextualize what was happening for him and his family with his father's mental health illness and depression. And to begin the interview, I just asked Franklin to share a little bit of what were some early memories of his father. You know, I grew up in the in the well in the late '50s, but mo- mostly mostly in the in the '60s. You know, and we had a traditional, you know, family where there was dinner time, and and so you know, my my memories revolve around my dad um, being at the head of the dinner table. My memories revolve around my dad um, working on cars. His first vocation was as a as a mechanic, and so he took care of our own cars, and he. Uh, was from the east, from New Jersey, and he wound up out west, which is where we, we grew up. We grew up in Rapid City, South Dakota, just a few blocks from Canyon Lake Park, you know, and so that was kind of the the epicenter of, of one of the grammar school phase of my childhood. And so I just remember him, you know, I remember picnics there and, and you know, sitting on the bank in... Um, in all of our activities, you know, he's kind of, in some ways, he was not an emotionally intensely participatory father, but he was very, he was, he wanted us to have opportunities. He was of that generation that wanted his children to have opportunities that he didn't have. I always felt that my mom and dad wanted us to have our own minds, you know, and to go our own way. And I think that a lot of things about me he very much disagreed with. Because he died when I was I was 24, more than half of that time, I was away in the military. You know, that I never got to know him as an adult as much as I would have liked to. Again, he was, he was not expressive in a lot of ways, but he really believed that his job was to give us a better life than he and my mom had. Because they grew up in the Depression. You know, my dad stood in soup lines or whatever you want to, bread lines or whatever with his dad, you know, in New Jersey. And my mom grew up in farm country um, in the Depression when you didn't even have money, you know, you traded chickens for, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's just like you, you had money. It's not literally that, you, but they were very poor people. 
when they were young. So the suburban post-World War II, 1950s, have a home of your own, get a job, save for retirement, you know what I mean? That, that was their deal, you know, and they just accomplished it and were very proud and felt like they had done their, were doing their job, you know, as, as uh, parents. So I would say our relationship was very good. And, and when, when I got out of the Army, you know, I just was having, a, I had a lot of, a lot of problems. I, I uh, over drugs, uh, my first wife and I uh, were in the middle of a divorce. And, you know, I moved back into their home. So I had, I had a lot of, I had a lot of proximity with them while I was in a lot of turmoil. They weren't familiar with this kind of situation. Of, of a person having the kind of problems that I was having. And then uh, not too long before uh, my, my dad died, I, I moved to a town about 20 miles away. Which they lived in Brigham City, Utah, and I moved to Ogden, Utah. Those couple of years between when I got out of the Army and went through my divorce and moved to Ogden, you know, we were around each other. When my dad started to have troubles, I was in the fray, you know, because my mom and I were there, you know, and everybody else was somewhere else. Yeah, and I felt like I knew him very well, you know, and that he knew me very well, and that we had a very, you know, we were able to talk to the bottom of anything. Something, something horrible happened to my family, um, and, it, and it ended, the end of it was my, not even the end of it, the end of the part that he was involved in was his suicide the crisis or whatever didn't end for the rest of us, but for him it did. But in the summer of 1978, he started to behave just entirely strangely. He had begun, uh, he was 49 years old, and he had begun the process of getting a medical retirement from his civil service job. And something about that, over the next month or two, he just lapsed into a deep depression. And we didn't know that's what it was either. Like he didn't get any any treatment for it for, for some time. You know, so we just were watching this guy starting to talk about that he thought maybe the FBI was interested in what he was doing. You know, he lost weight. He, you know what I mean? He just, he so was not himself. He was, um, and again, I wasn't a witness to all this, but you know, he was irritable in a way that was not his way you know he was not a, he was not a combative person or or f anything like that but he was he was irritable and kind of disagreeable and uh he i mean just over over that period of time between july august september october over those three or four months it just it was like every week it was a lot worse than the week before and you kept thinking this can't get any worse. And then every week it was a lot worse than the week before. We knew so little about mental illness that I would say we knew next to nothing about it. You know, even though we were, we were, you know, educated people or, you know, we like, you know, we were up on current events, but, but we did not know anything about mental illness. And, you know, it was horrible. And by the time we got into his general practitioner, not to be harsh, but I don't think his general practitioner knew anything about mental illness. You know, so what happened to my dad, I describe as like watching someone die in a car crash, only it takes four months. And you just get all of the precursors to it. So, so that's what it's like to me, is just like watching this person lose his mind. And then 
I mean, we got too little help too late or, or we got the only help that was available, but we got all the help you could get. You know, he, he, he killed himself in a psychiatric ward on suicide watch. So, I mean, we got to the, you know, we got to the emergency room, so to speak. That isn't, by that, I mean to the psych ward. You know, we got there, but oh, it was so too late. And the standards of care then, I mean, it doesn't seem like, 1978, one should think of it as the dark ages, but it was in some ways. The standard of care then was poor, you know, overall. And I'm sure that there were places where it was excellent, but it was not excellent at um, McKay D Hospital in Ogden, Utah in 1978. I can tell you that, you know, and the care he was getting was not excellent. It was the best that was available, but it was not helpful. Just we did not have any, any information or any help what I would say is in a hundred different ways we were trying to love him the way we knew how but none of that was I mean we just had horrendous times so I think I think I think what what I, what I would say a part of that whole experience just had to do with the absolute frustration over dealing with an illness that is so much more real and powerful and insidious than you than you even have a clue about but yet at the same time given your all you know to be helpful and yet when you look at the difference between given your all to be helpful and what the actual real situation was and required you know the reason it was so 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 demanding and so exhausting was because we weren't we weren't anywhere close to bringing the resources to bear that we needed. We weren't anywhere close to doing the things that we needed to do. There's a there's a book full of scenes in that last you know ten weeks of rallying the troops or you know being confrontational you know with him, and I mean confrontational in the kindest way. You know he continued to deteriorate, and finally um, she persuaded him to admit himself voluntarily to a psychiatric hospital, you know, so then we were just like all going, oh man, you know, this is just like, like my mom, okay, my mom, if my mom can't manage something, you got trouble, because she can manage some stuff, all right, she is, uh, she is a rock, you know, and uh, if we were on crisis management mode, then it just like, it's like an explosion of crisis management mode. So, you know, and so I, I went to see him. And what do you remember when you saw him? There? Oh, you know, I just, he was, he was so, you know, and, and this was, this was true in the, in the weeks and months leading up. To, he was so gaunt and so lost and so frightened, you know, and that was just, more so because he was also drugged, you know? I mean, it was just almost like, I, I don't mean that he shuffled his feet when he walked, but you could see that he was one step from that, you know what I mean? Like he walked normally, but you could just, everything was heavier. I went, I went and saw him, I think, only twice. You know, I, I remember he showed me his jackknife. Okay, so now this is how archaic things were you know he was allowed to keep his jackknife and I didn't think anything of it either you know because I thought well he's in here being taken care of he's not going to do anything with that you know he said they let me keep this and I go 
well, I'm sure it's okay then, Dad. You know, I didn't think alarm. You know, like if I, if today something like that happened, I would tackle the person, you know, or, or I would scream at the staff. I would go nuts, you know, but I had no clue. And then um, another visit, I visited him more at night. And I don't even, maybe these were both on the same day. I can't remember. You know, and again, it was pretty, I don't remember, I don't remember the content of the, of the visit. Um, but I do remember this. And this is the last time I saw him. You know, I was, there's kind of this day room out in the, it's not just like a nurse's station, but there's kind of a day room out, out in the, out in the open part of the, of the psychiatric ward. And my dad was standing over by, uh, the nurse's station. And so I said goodbye to him there, but, and then, and then I walked across to the exit and then I, I looked back and he was, he was looking at me and we, we stood and, uh, looked at each other for a minute, you know, for, you know, for, for a good minute, you know, and I can just remember thinking, I had to walk over there and grab you and take you out of this fucking place, you know? And it was like, I just went, yeah, right. <laughs> like, you know, there's no place to go, you know? And I just turned and left. You know, and that's really the last time I saw him. And so I got up early the next morning and I went to the library and all I was doing was reading stuff about electroconvulsive therapy. I was like going, I don't know what we're going to do. Because I was told my mom I'd be over. At, I can't remember if it was 9 or 10 or whatever it was. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll tackle it again. You know, so I was just trying to figure out what we're talking about here. I drove over to the hospital. And I parked my car. And unbeknownst to me, my mom had been watching for me. Because there's no way to, you don't have a cell phone. So I got out of my car and I and I was walking uh, down the down the row of cars to the entrance of the hospital and my mom came out and when we were I bet we were a hundred yards away still quite a ways away and when she saw me she couldn't go any further All she said was over and over, come to me, Frank, come to me, Frank. But it was a howl. And I just, I can't even tell you. I mean, you know something. I mean, I never saw or heard anything like that in my life. You know, a lot of it, I, I don't, I don't remember very well. The next, the next 24 hours was... You know, so she she filled me in on, on what had happened, and he had uh, he had gotten a sharp instrument, and uh, and uh, fatally wounded himself. We didn't know it was fatal yet, but it didn't look good. You know, we got a chance to go in and see him, but it was horrible. You know, it was horrible. You know, it was one time where my medical knowledge worked against me because I think, even though I was trying to be outwardly supportive and outwardly hopeful because you want to be hopeful even if you know you're deluded about it you know when they would tell me things I would go we are done we are done you know this does not have a good ending there is no way you know but I didn't talk to anybody like that 
I can remember going in with my younger brother and his wife. Um, God, who might have still been pregnant then, I think so. And my dad, he was just like packed up like a mummy. It was a horrible thing. It was just, it was horrible. And uh, so we're in there, well, the visiting, you just go in and be with him, which is what we, we did. And so we did that as much as we were allowed to do that. And uh, my dad started to have a seizure. And, uh, you know, the nurse came over and, you know, pushed some drugs into his IV. And he, and he, and he uh, calmed down. And I can remember my younger brother saying, oh, good. And I was just thinking, oh, good. This is not good. They are just turning off his electricity so he doesn't do that. You know, so, so it was just like one of those times when I was just like going, we are so fucked here. You know, my mom got up in the bed with him, just weep, weeping, you know. And then one thing led to another, you know. That was it, you know. So then we just did what people do who have to bury their father. Even though I knew in my heart that that was a risk and that was a high risk, even though he talked about it, that's why we put him in the hospital, <laughs> you know. In your mind, you never really believe that your loved one is going to destroy himself or even the likelihood and really thinking that the person who raised you would destroy himself. You know, it's just like, uh, well, it's not going to turn out that way. This doesn't look good, but it's not going to, how could it possibly, how could he possibly do that? You know, I don't know what it is we tell ourselves that our loved one wouldn't do that, you know? So I had, even though I was afraid of it and, and it worried me horribly, I never thought, as contradictory as it might sound, I couldn't have been more surprised when he actually did it. You know what I mean? It was like, well, of course that's what we're trying to keep him to do, but he, he's not gonna do that. I remember one time, uh, here's what we were doing. We were we were looking, as you would do with somebody, you problem solve, and we're looking at all the options, right? We're looking at all the options. I mean, it's just, when I look back at it, I think, oh my goodness. You know, what a disservice to him, you know. I mean, but he would play along. <laughs> you know, he was trying, you know, but he just didn't have the connection to reality to do this, you know. And so, but it was an opening for him to say, you know. So I said, well, what do you, what do you think? He said, well, I have another option. What's that? He said, well, I could, you know, I could end my life. You know, and it's something, something in that conversation, it just made me so angry. And so here's what I said to him, and I regret, if there's anything I regret, I don't regret not taking him home with me that night, because I, you know, it's delusional to think that that might have had a good end, you know. But I do regret saying this to him. I said, well, just before you do that, here's what you should do. You should think about what my face will look like when they tell me. That's what I said to him. And so I always worried, you know, that he thought about that. Do you think he did think about that? One of the things I thought was because he did it in a bathroom. Look, you're in a bathroom. You're about to die. You're going to look in the mirror. You got to, don't you? Just got to look. 
So I always wonder, you know, if he looked in the mirror and, you know, thought about that. You know, I don't, that's, nobody knows, you know, what happened. But I can't believe that a person could end everything with a mirror in front of him and not look for a minute. So I, that's the image I see of him before he dies, is looking in that mirror. The devastation of it, it immediately and completely debilitated her emotionally, psychologically. She was so shattered by it Im immediately. It just was like getting hit by a board and everything is different. You know and maybe maybe that was true for all of us you know each in our own way but to me um, the the extent to which it devastated my mom was as traumatic as anything else that happened you know she was not okay for a long long time and especially when you see that happen to the enforcer in your life, you know what I mean, the strongest person probably in my in my life in many ways, you know, even though there were more way more masculine strong people in my life, my granddad and and, and others, you know, there wasn't a stronger uh, person in my life than my mom. And so just to see her absolutely crippled by it. And that wasn't for a week or a month. That was for years, you know, for years, you know, and I just like, boy, you know, and we were all crippled in our own way. I mean, I just had a lot of trouble. So, you know, it's, it's helpful for me when I, when I think about that, not to think so much about what other people did, you know, um, which there's plenty to say about, um, but to think about my own evolution over that. Yeah, so so this is the this is the way to, to talk about this look. I wouldn't I would never say that I hated my father for it because I, I never I never felt that at all. But I could not have been more angry at him. All right, I could not have been more angry at him, and I could not have been more judgmental myself about him about what he did being, you know, cowardly or selfish or I don't know what all, you know, but I was, I, I was, I was horribly angry at him. It was me thinking that, um, that, that the choices he faced were different than they were, that his, um, that his, that the role of his will in it was different than it was. That, that, that the pain that he had to bear was different than it was, you know? So a part, part of my evolution has been just to understand that even though he made the final decision and took a definitive action that destroyed himself, the character of choice that was involved in that was extraordinarily strained, strained more than you can realize unless you're there, you know. 
would I require my dad to live in insufferable, irremediable pain instead of die so that, you know, I didn't have to, and I'm not saying that that's what the choices were, but from his point of view, that's what the choices were. He experienced insufferable, irremediable, constant psychological, emotional pain that was unbearable. He experienced it for weeks and months. And we can sit here and say, well, and, and I believe this, I will sit here and say, you know, that if he had made it through this crisis period, we know that the chances that he might have survived <clears throat> over time are relatively good, actually. But we don't know anything about his case. There was not a thing in his world from the care that he had gotten or the support that he had access to that suggested that there were dots connected that would lead to him being getting the treatment he needed. There was nothing. He went to the best psychiatric care in the world that he lived in, and they did not even diagnose him with an addiction problem, you know? I mean, you know, they, they, they use drugs that we know don't work, you know, or don't work very well, you know? But this is what they had, you know what I mean? And it was just, you, you know, there was, he, from his point of view, he suffered in a way that um, should bring no judgment about his um, desire to end that suffering, however he's going to do it, you know. But uh, do I wish it was different? Do I believe it might have been different? If he were here, would I still, you know, try and save his life? Absolutely, you know. But but I think that I think that my evolution has been just about um, a tremendous sympathy for the suicidal mind, you know, for a person who has, who has, a, who is in a suicidal state, you know, and a tremendous empathy. And because of my own drug addiction and my own mental, mental health issues, um, which have evolved over these 36 years, you know, I mean, I've gone to the bottom of it, you know, um, and so I know that it doesn't have to do with, you know, whether you're selfish or whether you're brave or whether you're strong or whether, or it just, those, those things don't even apply. We as a society have a profound misunderstanding, a profound misunderstanding of what happens to people like my father or people like Robin Williams, that what really was going on with them, that we have a profound amount of ignorance about what it really is and what it really looks like and what it's really about. Well, what does it really look like? What is it about? Not everybody who dies by suicide goes through the same experience, but I think that, that people who die by suicide find themselves in a place where their, 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 their entire vision, vision, I mean their, their heart vision, their soul vision, their spirit vision, their mental vision, everything is reduced to either this pain or turn it off that's the whole deal there's constricted to see either this pain just like this forever or turn it off and to me turning it off seems like a good idea then doesn't it you know what i mean like if those are your if that's your perspective i don't think those are your only choices but if you believe those are your only choices suicide makes perfect sense 
you know, and that's where I think they go is somewhere that looks like that, you know, and there's, there's, there's a hundred varieties. Okay. So I'm talking about the particular kind of suicide that took my dad's life. I think this was the kind of suicidal episode that took Robin Williams life, you know, that he just, okay, it's either that or turn it off period. Like, I don't think my dad's death uh, was my fault, but I did for a long time, you know, think that, you know, not that it was just on me, but like, hey, I messed up, you know, he was counting on me. You know, my job was to not let this happen. And I failed, you know, I felt like that for, oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. This phrase that I used about what we did was to love him the way we, the ways we knew, you know, that that's part of it for me. I shifted how I looked at it, not to what we didn't do or didn't know, but to what, because this is what we had. What we had was a tremendous love for him and we applied it, right? That's what we knew to do. You know, in that I just realized what I have dominion over and what I don't have dominion over, you know, and I don't have dominion over what my dad does in a bathroom in a psych ward. If I had been able to influence that at some point, I would have, you know, I would have done everything that I could. I would have uh, moved heaven and earth, you know, and I know that. So th that's a reduction of, you know, about 15 years of work, <laughs> you know, into a couple of observations. But those are, those are very poignant, poignant, meaningful observations to me that I carry with me and that are very, very um, healing to me because they, they reflect reality, not because they're a made up thing. They reflect my reality. Grief has been absolutely transformative to me. I have discovered meaning through my loss. You know, I have discovered um, purpose. I have discovered how things really tick you know, as far as human nature through my father's death and through my recovery from it. In the world where I live, you know, where people are working to help people who are suicidal, people who are working to help people who have lost a loved one to suicide, it's about some regenerative force, you know, some transformational force the energies that help you bear unbearable pain. It's about those, they're, to me, pretty practical things that you can point to, you know, but those things are spiritual to me. Those, if there's a God, that's what, that's what God's in charge of, is that stuff. I went to all kinds of help, inpatient counseling, outpatient counseling, family counseling, group counseling, drug counseling, after treatment counseling, you know what I mean? I went to hundreds of 12-step meetings, okay? So in all of these instances, in one way or another, my father's death by suicide was a part of them. But I had never centered on my grief, or especially on the traumatic, the response to trauma that I had. Never, never once it was that, I went to somebody for that. So I have found that reaching out to people with expertise in helping me see what's really going on. And when I went to this uh, psychologist later, a police psychologist later, and this is 30 years down the road, he helped me find this conclusion that, that my father 
had, and this wasn't his words or mine, but it's an easy way to explain it, had the right to decide what to do with his pain. He had the right to decide how much pain to bear, that I don't have that right to tell him how much pain he can bear, you know? And that's a terrible reduction of, of what we, you know, what we concluded, but that opened up all things about understanding my father's volition and my father's pain in this extraordinary way that I understand it now. So, so, so I sought help. And if I hadn't, bad things would have happened. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lone ranger, you know, and um, to a fault, you know. But, um, but I, but I, uh, I seek and benefit from asking for help. I think that newly bereaved people. You know, if if I if I could advise them about anything, it would it would just be that um, that you know your grief is your grief. You know, what I what I tell people when I'm training is I say <clears throat> I know a lot about grief, but I don't know anything about in particular about your grief. Okay, and I just think that that is a fantastic thing to keep in mind that 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 this is your journey that that the discoveries and the decisions and the actions that are involved with remembering your loved one with with um, with figuring out what your relationship to your loved one is now with mourning your loved one with bearing the pain that is coming your way over the loss of your loved one all of those things are although I hope you would get a lot of help with this how you handle it and what you do with it is really your thing you know you really have a right it's not just that it's your thing in this um, philosophical way you have a right to get what you think you need and to operate how you think you need to operate to recover from this you know and so so there is absolutely no timetable on this you know a loss to suicide think of think of think of if you were hit by a truck and the extent you would take time off work you would go to rehab you would go to you'd have surgery you go to physical physical therapy you would i mean you know what i mean it would be a big deal right that might it might take you a year or two years to really get get you know on your feet well suicide for many not for everyone is like getting hit by a truck of grief you know it's, it's got that well what are the things in your life that you need that that have the weight of response or the weight of helpfulness that you would bring to bear on a physical malady you deserve that you deserve to find those things, to get the help you need with those things. And, and so I guess the goal for, for me, and I think that this may be helpful to people, is not to escape from the pain, is not to kill the pain, but it is to feel the pain, all right? It is to bear the pain. Now that doesn't mean that you just grit your teeth no matter what, because you need to pace yourself. You need to step back from from the pain. You need to be able to modulate the pain. But there, there, there is a an element of this painful experience 
that there aren't the right words to use for it when you're in the middle of it because they don't sound right. But it's, it is to embrace it. It is to engage with it. It is to feel it. The pain of loss is caused by love. There is a direct relationship. And that pain is as complicated as your love of people. You know, that might not mean that, that you know, it was an uncomplicated, you know, situation that you had with them or that, that there aren't negatives and positives about, about your relationship to them, both before you lost them and now. But it is of great comfort to me to this day to know that all of my strongest feelings about my father emanate from my love for him. Even if they're horrible feelings, they emanate from that. If you had a chance to say something to your father, what would you want to say? I would probably say, you know, Dad, I imagine, you know, that what happened to all of us, you know, was a lot worse than you thought it was going to be. And I just want you to know that, um, you know, I don't like blame you for that or, or I, I don't. You know, I don't hold anything against you, you know, over needing to go, you know. I still wish it was, was different, but that's more about, you know, how much I wish I'd gotten to know you, you know, as an adult. Because I think we would have been, I think we would have had a really rich, rich experience and I, and I miss that, you know. But I don't, I don't, I don't hold anything against you, you know. And, um, you know, I love you just the same, no matter how, how, how it went, you know, for any of us, you know, it's not your, it's not your fault, you know, none of it is your fault. Or if we could have another go at it, I would hope we'd do it differently, but we don't get another go at it. And, you know, we have to accept that too. So, you know, be at peace is what I would tell him, you know, be at peace. What would you want to hear from him? You know, the, the greatest, I think, personally, the greatest human <clears throat> experience, you know, is really to be, you know, to be known by another person, to be held or to be understood or, you know, or to be accepted or, you know, so, so if, 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 if if I if my if my father were alive, he would be a pretty old guy, you know, like ninety or ninety or something. And I would want him to say, "I know you, you know, I know you for who you are." That's all. You know, really, that's the most. Uh, that's the most intimate experience human beings can have between each other. And I believe that if my father would have lived, that we would have had that experience fully, you know, and that it would have been amazing, you know, because he was really an amazing person, you know, for all of his faults and for all of his, you know, limitations or what he was, a, he was a truly wonderful man, you know, and uh, my oldest son is going to take me on a, fly fishing trip for my 60th birthday. It's just going to be a one-day float, but it's going to be a gui guided, you know, the Cadillac. If my, uh, you know, if my father could go in that boat. 
you know, it would be just such a profound, you know, and it's not just about that particular scene, but I, I think of that reverberating out to my other children and my grandchildren and, you know, him being at the center of that, like my, like my mom is, you know, it'd be such a, you know, so that, that particular incident is just a touch point to, to my people, you know, to my, to my kin, as we say, and, uh, you know, we lost a potential center of gravity for that, and that is irreplaceable. I just think that uh, that uh, suicide is an extraordinarily individual thing, even if there's a genetic com component to it. It's an extraordinarily individual thing, and that, and that as much as we link it to medical causes, depression, and it is linked, I'm not saying that it's not, but we forget that it's linked to a lot of other things. It's linked to the environment we're in. It's linked to our social connectedness. It's linked to, our, you know, to a to a hundred complex things, so I think we have to take everybody one at a time when it when it comes to suicide. You can only help people one at a time. That's just true. Look, my father died an alcoholic, a highly functioning alcoholic, like many of us, and never once in his life made contact with anything that might have been helpful for that particular malady. That's remarkable to me, you know. So, so to me, a lot of it has to do both with, with what's individual's responsibility over reaching out, which we talk a lot about. What in our society lets that happen? Suicide is the canary in the cage. It's not just an individual thing. The canary in the cage, the miner's image, right? If you take a canary down and the, the fumes get noxious, the canary dies before the people do. Suicide is our culture's canary in the cage. It's telling us 750 people will die of suicide this week in the United States of America. That's two Airbuses going down. If two Airbuses were going down a week and half of it was preventable, we'd be paying some fucking attention to that. Well, two Airbuses are going down, and I don't know if half of it is preventable, but some percentage, <laughs> you know, some huge percentage is preventable. So to me, the, the backstory has both to do with, with an individual's responsibility for you know for for not you know for for his own addiction or for his own mental health you know it, we have to hold individuals responsible for that because they have to take care of themselves and they have to do whatever they're going to do to to be healthy but society has created a an environment where these things are not only accepted but perpetuated in a way that's very fucked up so to me, the backstory has to do more with that, with a, with the dynamics between us as individuals. We always look at this is all about individuals, you know, about screening people, right? Well, you can screen people all you want, and if you create an environment where people kill themselves, your screening is for shit. Think of it like this: we've created a society where it is logical, natural, 
explainable that 38,000 people kill themselves a year. What is it about that society that we've created to cause that to happen? Franklin and I spoke for about four hours and felt very connected to Franklin because he not only was able to speak from an analytical perspective that worked with me, it was like on the same frequency, you know, two 747 planes going down. What the hell is this about? What are we doing wrong? And suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. And how is that happening? And this is reported death. And so the numbers are expected to be much, much higher. And we're not doing enough. What could we do more? And I appreciate how Franklin kind of drives the role of us as a society to be able to explore how we can do better to support those who are struggling with mental health issues. And at the same time, I was so grateful for how Franklin approached his healing and the importance of embracing grief and exploring his grief and not running away from it. And I needed to hear that because I am still trying to figure out how to not run away and get too analytical about how I think about my father's death, but how I could feel and how he speaks about how he embraces the process of grief and how it was transformative for him and how he was able to find meaning through the processing the loss of his father. And I was left from that conversation just in awe of Franklin's ability to communicate so clearly and also um, kind of open me up. And when we were done with our interview, I got on my bike and I started heading towards Maine where I had an interview scheduled and by the time I got to Maine uh, that interview had canceled. But I decided to go ahead and keep going north and visit some friends who lived up in mid-coast Maine and had a farm. I thought I could use an extra day or two just to get grounded, start to reflect on some of what I've heard thus far from the men who I had the privilege to meet with and probably do a little bit of work on my motorcycle which was definitely struggling. So stay tuned for the next episode to hear what happened next.